Church, if you have your Bibles, would you open them with me to Paul's letter to the Galatians? Galatians chapter 1. And as you're finding Galatians 1, and by way of an introduction, I'd like to share a story this morning. For our first four years of marriage, Melinda and I lived in apartments. Initially in Arkadelphia, Arkansas, and then in Birmingham, Alabama, we began our married lives in housing that came partially furnished, provided on-call maintenance should you ever have a problem, and year-round ground crews that tended the yard that was outside of our window. Now, we loved apartment life. As extroverts, it meant that we had a bunch of neighbors to get to know. And as newlyweds, it meant that we didn't have to worry with the hassles that often accompany homeownership. However, as many of you likely know, life in apartments isn't as idyllic as the smiling faces on those Rainier advertisements suggest. Nor does it assure you of the namaste that's promised by that billboard on 13 that's opposite the college. The sad truth is that apartments are often crowded. The walls are thin, the appliances cheap, as with the carpet, insulation poor, and vents are really petri dishes for some of the most exotic bacteria known to man. In our four years of apartment living, I had a routine sneeze fest every morning that I woke up, which cleared by the time I got out of the house and to work that would only return in those 30 minutes prior to bed. It was great fun. So, as you can imagine, as soon as we were able to move into a home, we did, where we could breathe fresh air. Only the fresh air came with a host of new responsibilities, like grass and leaves and, and weeds that, thanks to said fresh air, grew faster, it seemed, than when we lived in the apartments. And so, one of our first purchases as new homeowners was a lawnmower. Now, I, I'd never owned such a machine. Truth be told, I'd never even used one. And there was little grass in Africa. The African grass that we did have was either tr trimmed by goats or it was hacked down by slashers. My, my father had a lawnmower, but it was my father's, which meant it was kept in plastic, polished, and it was fitted with these chrome spinner rims and therefore off limits to the general populace. Wholly unfamiliar then with grass and the grass affair, but wise enough to know that my father was an expert. I asked him, I asked him, what am I looking for in a lawnmower? And dad, being dad, he sent me all kinds of specs on the best engines, the size of carburetor, speeds, density of the, the foam for the grips that you'd want as you made your way around the yard in order to not get a cramp. And that, that's not true. But you can believe me, you can believe me. Uh, his suggestions were detailed and insightful. And so being an obedient firstborn, I took my dad's advice. I purchased a Briggs and Stratton because dad said it was built like America. It was tough, like a Ford. And it's true, I still have that sucker. And I can start it with one tug. Melinda can even get that thing going. And so I followed dad's advice. And I remember then dad's first visit to our home and his obvious pride in his boy's accomplishments. The man has a home. He's raising a family, and he's taken his father's advice on appliances. And so for those of you familiar with my father, you will not be surprised by his keen interest shortly after arriving at our home in seeing my yard equipment. And an indebted son, I was proud to show him my mower, which dad immediately inspected and followed with the question, so when did you last change the oil in this thing? Met with a blank stare. Dad continued, you realize that this machine needs oil, right? 
Now, knowing my father well, I sensed an awkward moment looming. And so immediately I responded in as helpful a manner as I could while still being honest, which did little to assuage dad when he noticed that there was no oil on the stick. I didn't know it had a stick. And so as any good evangelist, dad preached the gospel of small engine care to me prior to placing his healing hands on our little mower, getting it back in top shape. And it wasn't long after the dad returned to them. And I remember getting this note from mom in which she passed along dad's greetings, followed closely by his growing concern that I be correctly caring for my mower. My father's voiced worry was, having heard the gospel of how to care for my Briggs and Stratton, that I was now falling prey to the influence of those whose encouragement to take a hands-off maintenance approach was in my father's eyes worse than lies and for which they needed to be cut off completely when it came to advice regarding outdoor equipment care. Dad was deeply troubled that I might be abandoning the gospel for what was no gospel at all. And in a sense, but obviously one far more serious, this is the spirit of the Apostle Paul and his concern captured in his letter for the Galatian churches. Having declared the gospel to them, the message of God's great love for his broken creation demonstrated by his sending of his only son, Jesus Christ, who lived in complete obedience to the law and thereby fulfilled humanity's portion of God's covenant arrangement. Christ then died at the hands of sinners, thus paying the price owed by sinful people for their failure to be as God is, perfect. And Christ was then buried in a tomb for three days before he rose from the dead victorious over the grave and thus displayed God's acceptance of Christ's sacrifice. And now, whoever confesses their sin and believes in Jesus will have life eternal by being united with God in Christ Jesus. And this is the gospel that Paul had proclaimed throughout Galatia with the result being the salvation of men and women who quickly gathered and formed churches. Unfortunately, in the days following Paul's departure, people came to visit these newly established gatherings and, and began to teach them a message that was contrary to that by which they'd come to faith. This message was subtle, but while sounding similar, had significant differences with eternal consequences. And thus Paul, on hearing what was taking place, penned a letter seeking to address the matter. And Emmanuel, as people who live in a purportedly Christian culture. I believe that we, like the Galatians before us, we face daily exposure to pseudo-gospels. Now, whether it be through TV, radio, blogs, Facebook posts, local Bible studies, we are bombarded by so-called inspirational messages that promise us religious fulfillment or spiritual satisfaction. As we look within, as we set our hearts on what we desire, and then we work tirelessly to make it ours. Personal happiness as the end for human life. And as silly as many of these may sound, these pseudo-gospels are insidious, and I fear that they've captured the hearts of many, even those in the church who can point to a time in their past when they may have walked an aisle, may have confessed their sin even, and decided to follow Jesus. But friends, I fear that there are a number of churchgoers, even church members possibly, whose experience of the Christian life now isn't marked by the freedom that the Scripture describes or fueled by a hunger for fellowship with God's people and thirst for His Word that we find detailed therein. 
Rather, their lives are marked by a sense of, of obligation to duty, of, of slavery to, to fear, and to the fear specifically of failure. Does that describe you this morning? Do you find your heart drawn to spiritual disciplines, or do you feel overwhelmed just by the thought? Do you feel confident when entering God's presence in prayer, or obligated to come bearing gifts, like a week's worth of devotions and a tithe check in hopes that you'll be heard? Is your life marked by a growing sense of unworthiness, matched by an ever-increasing appreciation for God's great grace? Or do you feel like you're getting better? You're starting to get a real handle on this, this whole Christian thing, becoming an indispensable part of God's team. Church, I fear that there are many for whom these latter sentiments may be all too familiar, which is why we need to be reminded, as were the Galatians, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's a central tenet of Paul's epistle that we're going to begin studying today. So, with that lengthy introduction, and I recognize it to be so, but at the onset of this series that we begin today, I felt it necessary to establish Paul's principal purpose in writing and its relevance for us today, albeit through humor, but still, so with that wordy introduction, would you follow along as I now begin reading Paul's opening words given to us in Galatians chapter 1, verse 1, where Paul writes, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers with me to the churches in Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And may God bless the public reading of his word. Church, in these five verses, I believe that Paul establishes three things that we'd benefit from seeing together this morning, with the first being his authority, and that is where it comes from. The second, his audience, and so who it is that he's addressing, and third, his aim, why it is that he's writing. And so I want us to begin by considering Paul's authority. Paul's authority, which is indelibly tied to his apostolicity and is rendered, verse 1, where immediately following his name, he describes his station as an apostle. An apostle. In the manner that you or I tend to employ when introducing ourselves for the first time by stating our name and in what we do, thereby establishing our authority, Paul offers his name followed by his role as an apostle, literally one who is sent in the original language of the New Testament as that word is rendered in John 13, 16, where Jesus used it to denote the role of a messenger set against the one who sent him. And thus, in much the same way that I used to introduce myself in my many telemarketing conversations with the line, hi, my name's Andrew. I'm an admissions counselor at Washita Baptist University, which informed the listener, whoever they were, of who I was, what I did, and for whom. Paul also provides us with these same three elements, who he is, what he does, and for whom. His name is Paul. He's an apostle, or as we've just said, he's one who has been sent. He's a messenger, and he's been sent not from men or by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father. And by this admission, I believe that Paul reveals his reference here to being an apostle isn't generic, 
but specific. Meaning Paul, his hearers, he's identifying himself with a unique message and office, both of which are determined by the one sending him, who in this case is none other than Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. In other words, Paul's saying that he shares the special sending Jesus himself gave those select men that he'd gathered around himself during his life and ministry, the disciples. And church, the subject then of Paul's authority is of great significance as this letter begins because it establishes from the first the fact that Paul's message, whatever it is, and we haven't gotten to it yet, but whatever it is, it isn't original to him. And therefore, he has no, he's nothing to gain from its proclamation. So unlike the author of a book who may make money or, or grow a following as his work gains acclaim, Paul gets no such personal compensation. On the contrary, as he later confesses, he suffers because of his message's content. So whatever Paul's message conveys, and as I said, we're not there yet, but whatever his message conveys, he didn't come up with it, nor does he have any personal motivation for leaving it as it is. If anything, due to its harsh reception, he would be inclined to change it. And thus the fact that it remains as it is and has been harshly received is a testimony to its authenticity. And so that's the message. And Paul's authority also establishes the fact that there are other apostles with similar messages and that their messages, if they differ from his in any way, they're false. And they're false not because Paul says so. They're false because God says so, since he's Paul's source of authority. And so churches, we consider all that we're about to read together. I believe that the matter of authority is no less important today than it was in Paul's. Because as we listen to, to news, as we encounter stories, our only means of determining veracity remains authority. Truth can't be based on how interesting or, or novel an occurrence may be, as given by the volume of fake news produced daily, that while intriguing, as marked by the viral nature of reposts and video viewings, it remains what it is. Fake, right? Nor can authenticity depend on how many people attest to its veracity because history is replete with the wreckage of such misguided tragedies. Whole nations that got behind dictators. Our only means of determining truth rests in the authority of the one speaking, who for Paul is no less than God himself. So as Paul begins his letter, he starts by establishing his authority as divinely endowed. And he thereby assures his readers and us that everything he said and is about to say that we're going to read together is true. Why? Because it's God's words, not man's. And, and then just in case we might be led to think that the apostle here is a lone ranger, an eccentric against the machine, Paul adds the weight if we can consider it such, when compared to God's authority already established. But he adds, everything to follow is shared by all the brothers with me. So a likely reference to the churches who shared Paul's message as it may be distinguished from all others, as we'll see. And so Paul begins his letter by establishing his authority before he then turns to address, as we said, his audience. Paul's audience, which is conveyed in the second half there of verse 2 and constitutes the churches in Galatia. Churches in Galatia. 
And interestingly, this phrase has been viewed by scholars to, to be both ethnic and, and a geographical reference, both an ethnic and geographical reference, where the former, the ethnic reference, is taken to describe churches principally composed of Celtic men and women. Since the Greek term, the language of the New Testament, the Greek term Galatia, there from Galatians, is a variant form of the term Celti denoting Celts. So those who had come to occupy North Central Asia Minor, which is, of all places today, Turkey. And they did so by the 3rd century B.C. Now the latter reference, so the geographical understanding of this reference, views the Galatians as a diverse gathering of Greek-speaking Gentiles that were likely located in the southern Galatian towns, specifically of Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby, which accounts or accords with Paul's first missionary exploits in that region as recorded by Luke. And this is unsurprisingly the most widely accepted understanding of this reference today. But while there's a difference of opinion here as to the location of these bodies, church, there is unanimity when it comes to their identity as churches. And Emmanuel, this is of massive significance for us today because I believe that it reveals the church, as it's referenced, the church to be a specific local gathering or congregation of baptized believers. So men and women who have heard Paul's, the apostles' message, believed it, and then publicly affirmed their belief by baptism, associated by a covenant of the faith and fellowship around this gospel, that's a Christian commitment then, if you will, to care for, encourage, rebuke, and hold each other accountable to what the gospel Paul's preached. And by their sharing of the ordinances of Christ, they do so, governed by the laws that are in his word, gifts, rights, and privileges expressed there. And the only scriptural offices of this gathering of men and women are elders, pastors, and deacons, whose qualifications, whose claims and duties are defined for us by the Apostle Paul later when he wrote to Timothy as well as to Titus. In other words, when the Scriptures describe the church, its, its role and responsibility, they are describing gatherings just like ours. And so the church reference here is not some vague notion of, of, an, of a universal entity that constitutes all believers for all times. Now certainly there are instances in the Scripture when that's the case, most often, particularly in Paul's letters, such as this one, what's being described is a local collection of Christ's followers just like us. And Emmanuel, this is important. This is important because it means that according to the scriptures given to us by God, therefore authorized by the highest possible power, according to the scriptures, the local church then is the means by which we are called to display God's glorious character to His creation by living for Him a life of unity, holiness, and love. And you can't do that apart from Christ's church. You can't be the body of Christ solo. So Paul's audience reveals the nature of the church and the relevance then for everything he wrote is relevant for us. Friends, this isn't then just an old personal letter with significance in as much as it can teach us about the times and concerns as reflected in its contents. No, this is a letter from God the Father written by Paul under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit to the church. 
God the Son's bride. And so everything in this letter is for us. In a real sense, we are the audience Paul is addressing. And so the apostle establishes his authority, he identifies his audience, and then he presents his aims. Paul's aims, our third point. Would you look back with me now then to verse 3? Verse 3. This is where Paul writes, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And so in keeping with the conventions of general correspondence, Paul wishes his audience well, although rather than the empty salutations generally extended by Gentile authors in which they expressed hope that their words would find their subject in good health, Paul links his desires to their experience of the divine gifts of grace and peace, mediated not through him, the Father's messenger, but through Christ, the Father's Son, whose actions are the embodiment of the grace and assurance of the peace that he extends to them. For Paul, grace is clearly God's gift, given through Christ and received by faith. It isn't something we deserve, nor do we define it. Rather, God demonstrated grace when he sent the Lord Jesus Christ to earth to be born of a virgin and so to be like us in every way but without sin. God sent Jesus to earth where he lived under the law and in complete obedience to the law so that he might fulfill the law. In Christ's perfect obedience to God, he kept the covenant that God had made with humanity. He then gave himself for our what? Sins. And church, this is the central truth to Paul's gospel, to his understanding of grace and peace. According to Paul, Christ gave himself for sin. He didn't come to make us happy. He wasn't made incarnate to set the perfect example for us to emulate. He didn't give himself to demonstrate the fact that God's divine laws had been broken and that he's a moral lawgiver and governor of the universe and that some kind of penalty would be required whenever his law was broken. Neither did Jesus give himself to show how much God loved people by simply identifying with their sufferings, even to the point of death. No. As Paul writes, the Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for our what? Sin. And church, while sadly this remains an ugly word for many in our world, even in the church, as evidenced by the numerous erroneous attempts to understand Christ's work on the cross without regard to it, well, that this remains an ugly word. This is the reason Christ came. He gave himself as a propitiation for our sin, as Paul elaborates later, writing to the Romans, chapter 325, where he writes, of the redemption that is ours, it came by Christ Jesus when God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement or a propitiation, a substitute through faith in his blood. In other words, Christ's unwarranted death on the cross was a substitute for our warranted death. He died in our place, paying the penalty our sin deserved, and thus his death was the ultimate display of penal substitution. My sin sent Christ to the cross. Your sin sent Christ to the cross. The judge of the universe, God the Father himself, passed sentence upon the Son because as he'd established from the very beginning with Adam and Eve, 
failure to obey his word in its entirety necessitated death. And it was a judgment reiterated with Abraham and then explicated further when God delivered his laws to Moses. It's recorded in Exodus chapter 20 and Exodus chapter 34 because it's there that God said, I'm making a covenant with you before all your people. I will do wonders never before seen in any nation in all the world. The people that you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. Obey what I command you today. And the people had all agreed. They all agreed with the understanding that should they keep the covenant, God would do all the good that he promised. And should they break it, all the bad. The, the curses spelled out in Leviticus 26 with the ultimate end being death. In the provision of his laws, God enabled his creation, humanity, to see exactly what was required of them to live in relationship with him. And just how amazing life would be when they did. So God's laws weren't a bad thing. They weren't intended to squelch human flourishing or happiness or hold them captive to divine dictates, although that's how they're often viewed, thanks to the garden's original liar. God doesn't want you to eat from the tree. Why? Because he knows that if you do, you'll be like him. His law is keeping you from, from fulfilling your potential from experiencing real life fun. Law exists to keep you from genuine happiness. I'm sure this sentiment resonates in every heart here this morning. And whether you still believe it or not, it resonates. Because this is how we're hardwired. It's the principal impetus behind a baby's first expressions on planet Earth. And it only progresses, doesn't it? We're all lawbreakers. No matter how we'd like to introduce ourselves, we are all sinners and therefore merit nothing from God but death. And there's nothing that we can do to change this end on our own, which is why God sent his only son, Jesus. This is what I believe Paul intends when he writes, who gave himself for our sins. And all of this means sin is a big deal, the biggest and therefore, if we aren't preaching about it, holding our lives up to the standards of Scripture so that we may identify it, confess it, and repent of it, if we aren't daily engaged in sin management, then we're missing the heart of Christ's life's work. For this is what I believe Jesus meant when he declared, if you love me, you'll obey me. Love for God is evidenced by obedience, where disobedience would be what? Sin. And so if love, our love is defined by obedience, another way of wording our Lord's statement would be to say, if you love me, you will not sin. So are you an acknowledged sinner? Because we're all sinners. But have you acknowledged it, confessed it, and repented of it? Because if you haven't, you can. This is why Paul writes this gospel, Paul makes clear that Christ gave himself for our sins and that he did so to rescue us from the present evil age. In other words, Christ's death doesn't only have signification for our lives in the future. So when we die or when Jesus returns, whichever comes first, his death on the cross sets us free in the now, the present. And I realize that for many in our nation, Freedom is the possession of every citizen. It's what we celebrated this past Thursday. 
what we're Americans for. We're, we're all free. And so that which Christ is offering us here in his letter, we can easily conflate with the political and economic realities that define our country. But friends, the, the, the freedom that Christ provides exceeds the democracy and the free market displayed in America. Because while these liberties are great, and yes, we all enjoy them and are blessed to live where we do, they are all limited by sin. And while we see growing expressions of freedom the world over, all of those expressions are still limited, tainted by sin. And thus, what I believe Paul intends by the freedom referenced here is a freedom from sin. From sin. And the beauty of the freedom that he is espousing here is that contrary to our limited notions of freedom as consisting of existence without constraint or, or in the absence of limit or oversight, what Paul reveals by his apostolicity is the beautiful paradox that as a messenger under the authority of another who's God, the Son and Father, God, his message calls for submission to God's rule as Christ died to set us free from the restrictive evil reign of sin. And therefore, we're loosed from the world. We no longer have to think, live like the world. Everything, the, the values, principles, and purposes that define this evil world no longer have a hold over us. We're free. But we're not free to nothing, as if there exists such a thing as, as existence in a vacuum without the influence of some external force imposing or obliging us to something. Rather, we are free to live under God's rule where we experience His grace and where we come to know His peace and where He is glorified as Paul ends forever and ever. Amen. Friends, does this describe your life experience? And would you say that your days are marked by grace and scented by peace or or are those the last adjectives that you would choose to describe existence on planet Earth? Emmanuel, the beauty of the gospel is that these are the promises God guarantees to those for whom Christ gave himself, rescuing them from the present evil age. That's us, church. That's us. We've been set free. We've been set free from the way that our world defines these things, the, the narrow, self-serving manner in which our culture views peace and the works-based religions who promise that grace and salvation may be earned, merited. God has given us perfect freedom in Jesus, and as we live for his glory, we will come to know his peace in deeper and deeper measure as we experience his grace in richer and, and richer ways. May we not forget gospel church of God's saving grace received by faith in his son Jesus Christ and may we not add anything to it for grace and anything grace and is not grace and therefore it's no gospel and friend if you're here this morning and you're still striving to earn eternal rewards from whatever deity it is that you've chosen I pray that God opens your eyes to see the truth of your spiritual slavery. For whichever deity it is that you've determined to bring yourself under, you're still under their law. A law that enslaves you to, uh, to, to the fulfillment of their purposes and ends. 
And depending on their sentiments at the end of your efforts, you may or may not find satisfaction. Whereas in the gospel, Christ has fulfilled all of those things for you and gives to you his freeing grace. And if you're here this morning and you know these truths in your heart, but you've never, you've never affirmed that these are yours, that this is, this is your belief, remember, you can't belong on your own. Belonging necessitates being a part of the body, of identifying yourself publicly with Christ's church. Maybe this would be the day that you would desire to do that. So would you pray with me as we close? Father, you are good. You have given us in your word a reminder because we are so prone to forget. God, we don't save ourselves. We can't earn anything from you. God, and the beauty of your gospel is that it frees us from the obligation to live in light of the law so that we might merit your favor. God, you freed us. The gospel frees us. So we don't live burdened, enslaved to fear, but free. For all of those things have been accomplished for us by Christ. God, therefore, because we've been given all things, we live with joy. We live with joy knowing that the God who gives every good and perfect gift has given us already life eternal. God, would you remind us again of these truths as we face days in a world that is broken, that are difficult. Father, might you remind us of the freedom that is ours in Christ Jesus and the guarantee that this affords us of hope. God, we give you thanks and praise. For your gospel, in Jesus' name.